you know, there is a sense that um, we have done what the psalmist has encouraged us to do, to bless the Lord, O oh, my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And I just want to encourage you to continue as we worship publicly and corporately to, to bless the Lord um, with all you have. Uh, just uh, There are a few announcements um, that I, I do need to make, and um, so I'm going to go ahead and make them, and we'll just be a couple minutes longer. That's all right. Um, one thing I want to say, tonight we have a special sort of guest with us tonight, John Wason. John Wason is a, a young man who has memorized um, uh, large portions of the Bible, and particularly um, some books of the New Testament, and then he, he, he does a, a set, and he has a dramatic presentation of that book of the Bible. And so tonight we have John Wason with us, and he is going to be doing the book of James for us tonight, and the title of the, uh, of the presentation is Faith That Works. Uh, these are really quite extraordinary if you've ever, never seen one of these, just to hear a whole book of the, uh, of the Bible recited and then uh, put towards a, a picture that you can uh, frame in your mind. And so we'd really encourage you, if you don't normally uh, make it your uh, practice to come out um, at thirst, thirsty, which is fine, um, that maybe tonight you make an exception and come out and um, uh, participate in this. Uh, secondly, uh, you do have bulletins and there's a lot of information in there and some of it I will... Um, I will uh, point you to, and you can get more information about it. I just said that. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, PFBC has done in the past is we've had interns. And we haven't had one for the last uh, couple years, but we now have a, an, an opportunity to bring an intern on to help in our, our youth and college and career department this fall. And we have a young man, uh, Jason. He's a, a great individual, and he's uh, committed to coming and starting in September the 1st and working with us for 10 months. Uh, one of the things, though, that we want to provide for him is a room. A place to stay, um, not a tent in the backyard or something like that, but if you have a sort of a small suite or a room that's going to be available um, for all of or a portion of uh, September to June, uh, if you could contact uh, Dan or Julia um, here at the church and just let them know and we'd be uh, just thrilled about that and provide an opportunity for, um, for Jason to, to sleep. Um, the church is not that comfortable, but uh, that will be our last resort. Um, so you can find more information in the bulletin. Uh, secondly, or thirdly, I think whatever I'm at, uh, on the 23rd of um, August, we have a farewell for Pastor Lorne, and uh, you'll see some information about that. Uh, it's, uh, we're going to have a, a lunch again after the worship encounter. Uh, um, we're going to provide the, the meat and the drinks and the chips, and we want you to provide the salads. And then at 1 o'clock, we've got a short program uh, planned just to say thanks to, to Lorne. So that's um, coming up on um, the 23rd of August. Uh, and then this week, we have two kids' ministry events taking place, one on, um, on the Friday and one on the Saturday. And for the Friday uh, uh, event, uh, the Pirate Adventure Day, registration starts at 9 o'clock in the morning, and uh, it is open to children that are four years of age and older, up into those who have completed grade five. And we're hoping to have about 80 uh, kids this year, and uh, it's just for a day. And so if you've not yet registered or would like to bring a neighbor's uh, family with you, then certainly call the church office and get them registered, and we look forward to that. And there still are a need of a few items, um, nautical items, such as um, uh, buoys. Uh, I don't know. How, you, how do you say that? Buoys? I think that's right. Buoy, buoys. Thank you. Buoys. Those of you who are fishermen know. Uh, okay, we need buoys too, but we do need buoys, um, nautical items. Um, if you've got old maps or something like that and you might want to bring them in, then that would be great. Uh, and that's Friday, and then on, um, on Saturday night, we have a family movie night here at the church in the Connections Room, and uh, that's at 6.30 p.m. And then the final thing I do just want to draw to your attention is 
Uh, and we've not been saying a lot about this, but we have been encouraging you to pray and to participate in us. And that's the, the debt retirement here at PFBC. And I'm just rather astounded, you know, as I look at the back of our worship folder and you see it there um, uh, in, in the six months or six weeks which we have been uh, talking about this and praying together as a congregation about this. We've already um, got 30% of that covered, over $31,000. And I just, I'm just uh, amazed at that. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to pray with us. Um, to give towards that. Our goal is to have it completely done and erased by um, Thanksgiving Sunday, which is October the 11th. And whether you give $5 or $50, uh, it all makes a difference. And so pray with us or give with us, and let's believe that, um, let's anticipate that on October the 11th we'll be able to rejoice in God's goodness and helping us um, erase that uh, debt. All right. What is Sin. I've appreciated the emphasis on the holiness of God, and it uh, provides a good backdrop to um, the topic, what is sin? I was um, tempted this past week to, um, to do, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was tempted this last week, though, to do what I did the week before, and that's divided into two, um, but um, I guess to your dismay and to my betterment, we haven't, and so we've put it into one message this morning, and I will try and... Um, really be careful and get through it, but it's really important that we understand the beginning and the end of this topic of sin, and it's really a basic. We've been dealing with some of the basic issues of Christian life. Uh, we started out with a, with a look at what is God, um, then we dealt a little bit with what is the Bible, um, talked a little bit about what is prayer, um, then what are angels, demons, and Satan. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about what is man, uh, and uh, so these are things that are really at the core of Christianity. And uh, this morning I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the issue of what is sin. And uh, sin is something um, that we have all participated in. Uh, I believe the biblical revelation in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it clearly says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody that falls outside of that all. It's a universal all. And so it's something that each of us is familiar with. The trouble is, though, that sin is quickly losing its place in our vocabulary today, both in the church and the culture around us. For many, sin is simply an aggravation. It's like a mosquito bite that you scratch a little bit and you wish it weren't there, but it goes away if you just ignore it. Another person wrote, when it comes to sin, we mumble now. We don't like to speak loud and clear about it. We don't even like to use the word, and we don't want to refer to things as sin any longer. We have trivialized it by calling it a dessert. That's a sinful chocolate, and so somehow sin becomes caloric rather than an issue of ethics. We have renamed it, and the most common renaming, I think, is we call adultery an affair, and you can probably in your own mind think of all the other ways that we have renamed various sins. I was reading about a particular theology conference which had the title of their sort of conference on this issue, God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. <laughs> we have adopted a victim mentality. I am not responsible for what I have done because of my circumstances. There is always someone or someone else to blame for our troubles. We are now viewing sin as a disease. Every kind of human failing is now reclassified under one form of disease or another. 
We have eating disorders. We have sexual disorders. We have behavioral disorders. We have compulsive gambling. And what we used to call sin is more easily diagnosed now as a whole array of disabilities. The trouble with that is that a misdiagnosis means that any prescribed treatment will be ineffective in dealing with the problem. What is easier to say? I am sick or I am a sinner? We've rejected it. We now engage in guilt bashing. And in our media in the last number of years, and uh, certainly you see it in print and in what's being said, we don't like the concepts of shame and guilt any longer because they make us feel bad, because they make us, um, uh, our self-esteem is brought low. And so we're trying to erase the concepts of guilt and shame from society, from human nature. The trouble is when we do that sort of thing is we leave out our spiritual warning system. Guilt, one wrote, is a spiritual pain in the soul that tells us something is evil and needs to be confronted and cleansed. Ignoring our guilt will never free us from our sense of guilt. I was reading a long time ago, and I keep referring back to it, a little book by Carl Menninger entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? He wrote it back in the 80s, and it's an amazing treatment of this topic of how in culture and society we have lost the concept of sin, and we have done away with it by so many different means. And at the end of it, he writes, or at, the, at some place in the book, he writes, where indeed did sin go? What became of it? John MacArthur, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, which is an amazing book, writes there, in speaking to Christians around the country, I have seen a disheartening trend develop for the last decades, two decades. And he wrote this book in 1995. The church has a, as a whole is growing less concerned with sin and more obsessed with self-exoneration and self-esteem. Christians are rapidly losing sight of sin as the root of all human woes. And many more Christians are explicitly denying that their own sin can be the cause of their personal anguish. The potential impact of such drift is frightening. Remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of repentance. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you void the divine plan of salvation. Erase the notion of personal guilt and you eliminate the need of a savior. Another fellow who's probably one of the leading Christian philosophers, Cornelius Pontinga, writes, In this book, I am trying to retrieve an old awareness that has slipped and changed in recent decades. The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated it, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin or with a tone that singles an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. MacArthur, again, in the preface to his book, The Vanishing Contents, a conscience writes simply, I'm writing this book, and it's about one concept and one concept alone, awakening the church to the awful reality of sin. And one more quote from Cornelius Plantinga. 
in the preface to his book, my goal then is to renew the knowledge of a persistent, persistent reality that used to evoke in us fear and hatred and grief. Many of us had lost this knowledge and we ought to regret the loss. For slippage in our consciousness of sin, like most fashionable follies, may be pleasant, but it is also devastating. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing and disorientating suppression of our spiritual nervous system. What's devastating about it is, then when, is that when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play the right one or even recognize them in the performances of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss both the exposition and the recapitulation of the main themes God plays in human life. The music of creation and still the greater music of grace whistle through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. The idea that the human race needs a savior sounds quaint. When you lose concept of the sight of sin, loved ones, you, you lose sight of the need of a savior. If you don't remember anything else, let that rattle around in your brain throughout the rest of this day and this week. If you lose sight of the concept of sin, you lose sight of the need for a Savior. And that's why in this church, our elders take seriously the notion of sin. And we wrestle with it often on a monthly basis as we deal with issues that come across our plate. What does the Bible say about sin then? And this is sort of a, a real quick survey of the Bible. I think the first thing that the Bible would say is things are not the way they're supposed to be. Sin has invaded this world that God created. And as the biblical prophets would often tell us, sin has a thousand faces. The Bible presents sin with many concepts and with many images, principally lawlessness and faithfulness. Sin is a missing of the target. It's a wandering from the path. It's a strain from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of the line and the falling short of the line. It is both a transgression and a shortcoming. Sin, as Genesis says, is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These are only some of the images, and behind them is deviance. And even when it's familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is a, it is a disruption of the harmony that God created us to live in. And above all, sin disrupts that relationship that God created us to have with Him. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 3, encapsulates the three words for sin that are most common in the Old Testament. It's that psalm that was written after David had been exposed for his sinfulness with Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery with her, and then he had killed her husband to cover it up. And when he has finally come to his senses, when he has been convicted of his sin, he writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The word transgression means to revolt or to rebel against a standard. 
It's often what we see nowadays, particularly with snowboards or, or ski, skiers who go out of bounds. The, the boundary is clearly marked, the signs are clearly staked, and they transgress it. They say, I want the better snow, I want the deeper, the deeper inclines, and so they go out of boundary. That is a transgression. The other word that he uses, the second word, is to twist. It's iniquity. To, it means to deviate or to twist or to distort the standard. It's really summed up by Eve's word or by Satan's word to Eve. Has God really said? He didn't really mean this. He didn't really say that. He's not really going to worry about this. This is what he really meant. And so we twist and distort the standard of God. And the third word that is commonly used is simply a word which means to miss the mark, to fall short of the standard. It's a word that's used in Judges 20.11 of left-handed slingers who could sling a a rock and never miss the target. And so sin is falling short of the target that God sets for us. It's missing the standard that God has for our lives. Sin has very real consequences. And we go back to the first chapter of the or first section of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, and I just want to point out a few of those consequences because they have a way of exploding in our own lives and impacting our own lives. And I, I do want to say this as well. It is it is absolutely critical for a Christian worldview that we take Genesis one to eleven seriously. The whole of the Christian world is built on a correct understanding of Genesis chapter one to eleven. If we get it wrong about creation, if we get it wrong about man being created in God's image, if we get it wrong about how sin came into the world, we will get it wrong about everything else. And so Genesis 1 is absolutely critical for a biblical worldview. Um, in there, we, we find the, the first account when Adam and Eve sinned, and I just want to read some of the consequences that, that came of their sin, and they start in verse 7 of chapter 3. After they had eaten of the fruit, and then it says in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The moment that we sin, we realize that we've done something wrong. And the first thing that we try and do is cover it up. The first thing that we try and do is hide it. We see it in, if you have children, you see it in your kids. If they break a window, they put something over the window so you might not notice. If they scratch the car, you you find something leaning up against the car so you don't notice the scratch. We do the same kinds of things in our life. So the first thing that we try and do is we're aware of we've done something wrong and we try and cover it up. The next thing that happens is in verse 8 of the chapter where it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What is that? That's guilt and shame. That is, they know that they have offended God. They know that they have stepped outside of the boundaries of God. And so they hide. They avoid. You, you know, I, I do this when I'm in trouble with my wife and I've done something I shouldn't. I don't look her in the eye because I've done something wrong. I might stay out an extra hour later or something. But we, we hide because we know we've disrupted the relationship and there's something wrong with the relationship. And then verses 9 to 10, But the Lord called out to the man and said to them, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Where does that fear come from? 
That fear comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. That fear comes from the fact that we have offended the, the, the boundaries that God has set for us. We, we, have, we have the image of God within us, which is a moral and an ethical image. We understand when we have betrayed that image, and so there's a fear because of what we have done before that God. And so they were fearful, and they hid from God. Verses 11 to 13, the destruction in, in relationships, maybe starting in verse 12. Then the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with... She made me eat. See what we begin? This is, I'm a victim. And notice who, who is first, God, it's your fault, God. I sinned because you gave me this woman. And if God doesn't buy that, then we say, well, it's her fault because she made me do it. See, sin is an evasion of our responsibilities. And one of the consequences is if we blame everybody else. We don't take responsibility for our own actions. And so here it says that relationships break down. They break down with God. They break down with people. And then in verses uh, 16 and 17 and on, we see how, how the, the consequences of sin affected the woman in, in, in childbearing, which was a direct relation to God, say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sin had an impact on God's command to them. And then the man, how he was going to suffer as he worked in the land, which was a direct um, contradiction or contrast to what God had originally said to have dominion over the earth. And so sin erodes our relationships. It erodes our relationship with God. It creates fear. It creates sin. It creates or shame. It creates guilt. And it separates us from God. The culmination of sin is in Genesis chapter 6, good verse 5. And I really think this is the worst sin has ever gotten in the world. I believe it may get like this before the Lord comes again. But there it says in Genesis 6 verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. That's a pretty sorry description. And how rapidly sin had eaten man from the inside out. What is sin? Uh, apart from some of the things that we've described, it is the only way to understand sin properly. And this is why I appreciated the songs that we sang this morning about the holiness of God. Because sin has to be seen against the backdrop of the living God who created us. You can't understand sin apart from reference to God. So doesn't it make sense, loved ones, that the world is constantly trying to get rid of the concept of God? Because if you get rid of God, you get rid of sin, or so they think. If you remove God by saying we evolved rather than created, then morality is not really an issue. It's, it's behavioral. The only way to properly understand sin is in relation to the living God who created mankind. Psalm 51.4. This is David again. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against Israel. But in the end of the day, the offense was against God. He had broken God's law about adultery. He had broken God's law about murder. And so his offense was against God. 
Same with Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, when he's being harangued by Potiphar's wife. Day after day, it said she went after him for, so that she, he, he would have sexual relations with her. And finally, he said to her, how can I do this sin and sin against God? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He understood it. He got it. Yes, we offend others, but the main offense the primary offense is against God, who is holy, who created us. So sin is any failure to conform to God's moral law revealed in the Ten Commandments, revealed in, in the image that's created within us. Um, it's everywhere in us. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. That's how we understand sin. It's in relationship to God. Now we move on to, I think, a little more difficult thing. And there's a bit more bad news before we get to the good news. But it's important that we understand this as people. Sin, our sin, is traced back to our single ancestor. The state of spiritual death has passed from Adam to all mankind. Scripture explains it this way. Through one man... Sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 12, or 5, verse 12. In the wisdom and sovereignty of God, He ordained that Adam would be the head of the human race. And when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned, or was corrupted. In Romans 5, 19, it says, Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now this really rattles some of our cages. And it has certainly been the discussion of a lot of theologians for hundreds of years, and it will continue to be down through until Christ comes again. But for us this morning, it is important that we affirm what Scripture teaches, and that is this, Adam's sin brought guilt upon the entire human race. He was our representative. The guilt of his sin and the sentence of death for his sin was passed on to all of us. As Corinthians says, in Adam all die. Again, do you see how important it is to take Genesis seriously? Because if we get it wrong with Genesis, if we say Adam was not a real human being who lived in real space time, then none of this makes sense. In fact, it's kind of a joke because he's just some kind of figured figure of our imagination who we try and attribute original sin to. No. Adam was the first descendant. As Acts 17, 26 says, God created from one man all mankind to inhabit the world. And so we are sinners because of Adam's sin. And you, you need to understand that because Paul in Romans 5 balances it then with the righteousness of Christ. Where he says through the act of, through, through, through one man's righteousness, one act of righteousness... All who put their faith in him, the many are made righteous. So in the same way that none of us can do anything to make us right before God, but in Christ, because of his one act of righteousness, his life and death, by putting our faith in him, we are made right. In the same way, as we participate with Christ in salvation, we participate with Adam in the fall. So we are sinners by nature, every one of us from conception. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before you became a Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, before you became a Christian, your nature was one of sin. You were an enemy of God because of your nature. Mark 7.21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I was struck by this the other day, and I don't know why it popped into my head, but I was out at Starbucks with my wife, and we're walking out of Starbucks, and I, I said to her, you know, Kath, there's been an issue that I haven't, there, there's not been any sort of outside influence of that issue in my life for the past two years or more. But I said, I'm still struggling with it. It's because it's inside of me. It's not outside, it's inside of me. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the Christian's new nature a little bit later on, but, but the Bible says we are by nature sinners because of our identification with Adam. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we have to understand, I know it's hard to understand, but sin flows from our nature because we're a descendant of Adam. We are sinners not because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. We are born with a sin nature enslaved to sin. That is such a critical concept to understand. But just in case you're a little bit angry about that and you say, I don't like that. Well, we're all sinners by act. There's not a person here who has never sinned in their life. As Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As one man wrote, a bad strain has gotten into the stock so that we now sin with ease and the readiness of people born to the task. Sin is universal and it's pervasive. Just as we saw last week, and it's so important to understand this, that the image of God is in every single human being. And so it matters how we treat every single human being, whether they're unborn or whether they're 112, they all equally bear the image of God. And in the same way, every single one of us is marred by sin. 1 Kings 8, 46 if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Acts 14.3, they have all turned aside. Together they have begun, become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 1 John 1.8, if, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. As a side again, the, the biblical explanation of the fall and the perversity of mankind I think, is the only explanation that makes sense. It's the only explanation that, 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 that somehow in our mind, as we look at the world and as we look at people and we look at our own sinfulness, it's the only one that makes sense. Even though it's hard to grasp, it's the only one that makes sense. And sin is extensive. Romans, Romans is, a, is an amazing book, and most of the first three chapters are given over to the issue of just saying that there is no one who is without sin, whether they're Jew, whether they're Greek, or whether they're moral. And in the end of that section, Paul sums it up this way in Romans chapter 3, and I want to read it uh, uh, this morning so you hear what Paul says. 
He's talking about the pervasity of sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Our character, our conversation, our conduct has all been tainted by sin. The entire human race is under sin. And notice the universality. No, not one. No, not one. Everyone. All. It's there. The truth is, we are not all as bad as we could be. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is death. Death is a mercy of God, do you know? Picture in your own mind, and I won't give you any names, but picture the most evil person you know. What if they never died? What if they lived to continue to perpetuate and to perfect their evil? What kind of a world would we live in today? God also, in His grace, and we call it common grace, puts restraints around us. We might have the opportunity, but we don't have the time. We might have the time, but we don't have the opportunity. Uh, we might find ourselves in a situation, but un unknownst to us, something happens, and we can't carry out what we decided to do. And so, while we are not as bad as we could do because of those things, we are unable, though, to do anything that pleases God in our sinful nature. Our, our, our whole natures, our hearts, our souls, our minds, our, our emotions, our wills, even our physical bodies have all been affected by sin. And it's attacked even the very core of our being, which is our heart. As Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? A bit more bad news and then the good news. Sin is a horrible blight. Isaiah wrote, they are a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have, they are utterly estranged. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. See, Isaiah is picturing here sin as an incurable leprosy of the soul. We are sick from top to bottom, from inside to outside. And we can't improve on our condition. We, we need to understand this. Jeremiah also says, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots? No. Can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? No. Because our very natures have been corrupted by sin. Sin is so much a part of our nature that we love it and are unable to break away for it in our own strength. We love darkness rather than light. And as Romans 8 says, the unregenerate mind, the person who is outside of Christ, is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Sin is bad news. Sin makes us hostile towards God. 
Sin has so corrupted us that we don't want to, and even if we wanted to, we are not able to do anything that pleases God. So what's the good news? The good news is Christ Jesus. The good news is mercy and grace. To speak only about sin is to say to you and to the world, I have some bad news and then I have some bad news. It's to forget that the center of Christianity is not our sin, but it's our Savior. To speak of sin without grace is to minimize the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But to speak of grace without sin is really no better. To do this is really to trivialize the cross of Jesus Christ. It's to skate past all the, all the struggling by good people down the ages to forgive and to accept and to rehabilitate sinners, including themselves, and therefore depart and cheapen the grace of God that always comes to us with blood on it. What had we thought of the ripping and writhing on Golgotha? To speak of grace without looking squarely at the realities of sin without painful, honest acknowledgement of our own sin and its effect, is to mute the symphony that grace is. I don't understand this, loved ones. But the grace and the mercy of God is in all its symphonic glory, in all its amazing color and beauty, is magnified against the backdrop of our sin and lostness. Listen to these verses. This is our hope. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. As John said when he saw Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As Isaiah wrote so many years ago, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Do you remember how I said and how Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature estranged from God. Well, Peter tells us that God gives us a new nature. See, that's, that's the hope of salvation. That's what Christ has made possible for us, that we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Our old nature is replaced with a new nature. Our old nature, which could do nothing but offend and sin against God, is replaced now with a new nature which wants to serve God, which wants to do what is right with God, which is acceptable to God because it is a nature that has been produced by the righteousness of Christ. All who believe on Him and receive Him obtain this new nature And as a result, all things become different. See, that's the hope of the gospel. And if you're here and you've never known Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that you you understand that struggle, you understand that rebellion, you understand guilt, you understand shame, you understand that inability that you have to to do anything with any length of time that keeps you away from that. Well, the good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ died in order to not only pay the penalty for your sins, 
but to make it possible that you can have a new nature and now be acceptable to God and serve God with a willing heart. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. Why would God love me despite my sin? God so loved the world. Why would God love the whole world which is full of sinners? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son Why would God's love for sinners be so compelling as to make him sacrifice his beloved son in agony and humiliation? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, why would God make salvation so simple? Requiring only faith from us and having done everything necessary to remove guilt himself. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Why would God want to exempt sinners from judgment, which we so deserve, even to the point of allowing his only begotten son to accept our judgment for those who did not deserve mercy? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why would God want to give us everlasting life? To be in his presence forever. Why would he want to give that to sinners who have done nothing but oppose him and hate him? We sang about it. Ron read it. And I'm going to read it again. The answer is found in God's grace and God's mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget none of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What do you need to do to be saved? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved.